God's presence, God's people, God's purpose, God's plan. These have always been the essential ingredients of the church. We find a recording of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection in the Gospel of Luke. That letter was the first of a two-part work, the second being the Book of Acts. In this letter, Luke recalls Jesus' ascension and commission, the spread of the Gospels, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the early church. In the past, God's presence was with His people in one place at one time. But early on in Acts, Pentecost occurs and God's promised Holy Spirit is unleashed in power, filling those who would receive and overflowing to those around them. With this new Holy Spirit power, the church began to explode, stirring among thousands as the message grew and spread. The mission of the church has been made clear by Jesus Himself. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now, more than 2,000 years later, God's presence is still being unleashed among God's people. And we are part of God's continued purpose and God's continued plan as the Holy Spirit moves in and through us. When Desmond Doss was a little boy, he was mesmerized by a painting in his living room. The painting was of the Ten Commandments, and near the, the, the command, Thou shalt not kill, was a subset painting of Cain killing his brother Abel. Desmond couldn't understand how anyone would want to kill anyone else, but on top of that, how a brother would want to kill another brother. Fast forward a couple decades, the year is 1942, the United States is involved in World War II in both the Pacific and in Europe, and Desmond feels the call to serve. There's a but to that. He's a Seventh-day Adventist, Adventist, he's a pacifist and a conscientious objector, but he wants to serve in an infantry unit on the front lines. He wants to be a combat medic. So he goes to the army recruiter and sa- explains the story, and the recruiter's just like, hey, I've got a warm body that I can throw in and fill my, co- my quota. Yeah, no problem. Signs him on the dotted line and sends him off to basic training. Well, shortly after he arrives at basic training, the drill sergeant gives him a rifle, and he says, I can't take the rifle. I'm a conscientious objector. I'm a pacifist. I'm I'm here to be a combat medic. I'm going to save the lives of these men in this unit. And at which time, several men in the unit beat the snot out of him. And that continues to happen over and over. Eventually, the company commander and battalion commander would bring him up on charges to court-martial him to get him out of the army. It's only when his father shows up, his father was a a World War I veteran and actually a World War I hero, and and he had served under the head of the court-martial back in World War I, the officer leading the court-martial, so he pleaded a case for Desmond, and believe it or not, Desmond was allowed to stay in the infantry as a combat medic and a conscientious objector. Some of the men said, as soon as you get on that battlefield, you're the first person I'm going to kill but he stood by his convictions. Fast forward now three years, the year's 1945, Desmond has proven himself over and over and over again in combat, saving so many lives. Well, the place is Okinawa, Uh, the specific place is a place called Hacksaw Ridge, and it's an ugly place because the Japanese are dug in. So the men of the 307th Infantry, his unit, attack, and during the attack and over the next three weeks, they would lose two-thirds of the men in the unit killed in action. They're given the order to retreat 
and Desmond refuses the order. He stays on Hacksaw Ridge and he continues simply to, to minister first aid and saves in, ends up saving 75 different men. For his actions, he would receive the Congressional Medal of Honor, the highest medal for valor in the United States military. Look what Desmond did here. He stood on the confidence of whose he was, a son of the living God. He stood on his faith and faced critics of his faith on the authority of Jesus. And then he acted on his convictions. Have you ever considered the difference one person, one woman, one man can make when they act on their convictions out of character, honor, integrity, and faith? such as what we're going to talk about today. In fact, if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. When you're confident in Christ, you can walk in his authority and act on your convictions. When you're confident in Christ, when you know whose you are, you can walk under the authority of Jesus and act on your convictions. God's got a lot to say about that as we hit yet another week in our summer series called Unleashed, Unhindered, and Unstoppable, an incredible story of the early church in the book of Acts. I'm excited about today's teaching. We're going to be hanging out in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4 because we're going to see Peter and John, two heroes in this story, live out this main idea in spades. So always go back with me 2,000 plus years ago. Jesus goes to the cross, he dies, he's buried, he's resurrected. It is the most important date, the most important event in the history of mankind. Now fast forward 50 days, it's Pentecost, Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit, but right before he does that, he tells his disciples, I want you to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the, of the earth, and tell people about me. So shortly after that, Peter preaches his first sermon. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and thousands of people come to Christ. The next day, Peter and John are walking back into the temple. Remember, they weren't trying to start a church. They were trying to show people that Jesus is the Messiah, that he completes Judaism. So they would preach and teach out of the temple. So as they're walking to the temple, they go past this gate called Beautiful, the Beautiful Gate. And there just so happens to be a guy who's been crippled since birth. He's 40 years old. He's on the ground right there. We don't know his name, but we're going to call him Jack. In fact, we're going to call him Jumpin' Jack Flash because he says, Peter, give me some money. And Peter says, silver and gold I have none, but in the name of Jesus the, Nazar uh, the Nazarene stand up and walk. And he stands up and he's doing jumping jacks. He's running all over the place. He is so excited. And then Peter gives a second sermon. And in that second sermon, he tells people, you need to repent of your sins. You need to return to God. You need to believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And as he's saying that, he and John are right there. Jumping Jack Flash is right there. And all of a sudden, they're approached by leadership of the Jewish religion because they got a problem with what's being said. What's going to happen to our two heroes? What's going to happen to Jumpin' Jack Flash? I'm glad you asked. Acts 4 verses 1 and 2. By the way, I always want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, we've always encouraged you guys during this series to use Chuck Swindoll's commentary that, that he put together. It's fantastic. For those of you uh, here um, who have been reading that commentary, you'll notice some of his words pop up into my sermon. So I want to give him some credit for that. All right, Acts 4 verses 1 and 2. As they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus 
the resurrection from the dead. So you got three groups of people showing up. It's the Taylor Swift crowd, you know, haters going to hate, hate, hate. And that's exactly what happens here. So three groups of people show up. They're important in our story. They're important in the book of Acts. They're important in the gospel accounts. The, the first group are the priests. Now, the, the priests, is pretty self-explanatory what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to teach the Mosaic Law. They run the day-to-day operations in the temple. They have very little political power, but they have a whole lot of influence, which gives them power. That's important in our story. The second group is represented by one man, the captain of the guard. The captain of the guard is the equivalent of the, police, the chief of police for the temple. Now, the temple has a whole lot of money. They've got treasure there, and they've got artifacts, priceless artifacts. So they've got to guard the treasure, but also they've got to keep order. So what the, the, guard, the guard would do is they would keep the, the, the non-Jewish people from going to the Jewish areas. If there was some form of uprising in the temple, they would squelch it like that. They worked hand-in-hand with the Roman military and the Roman guards. Then you got this third group, the Sadducees, a very small group. A very small group because they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the afterlife. They only teach out of the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they are seeing that their power base is going to be threatened. Anytime someone mentions the resurrection of Jesus, they're going to be right there. They have very limited power. They have to rule through what's called the Sanhedrin. We're going to talk about them in a second because they're very important in our story. What's the point of this? They're all upset because they're losing power. So let's keep on going, verses 3 and 4, and see what happens. And they laid hands on them, Peter and John, and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. They arrested Peter and John at nighttime, and the Mosaic law prohibited them from having a trial at night. But here's what's interesting about this. Just eight weeks prior, when Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, when he's arrested, he's arrested in the middle of the night, and they hold several sham trials in the middle of the night in this exact same place. So Peter and John are in this place, and they're put in jail. Most likely they put him in the fortress of Antonia. It's a, and next to the temple, there was this large fortress run by the Roman military. And as I said, the temple guard worked with the Roman military. They had colluded with the Roman military to where the worst criminals in all of Israel would go into this fortress. It was an impenetrable fortress. And they put Peter and John in there. And then when you look at verse 4, the number of men came to be about 5,000. Peter is preaching the heat. And several thousand people, they said men, 5,000 men. So they didn't count women back in those times. So over the, the past two, or two sermons, you have several thousand people, as many as 10,000 people could have come to Christ in that time. And the Sanhedrins or the, uh, the, the leadership's upset because everybody's going to that church down the street. In the words of Dr. Chuck Swindoll, he says, you can lock up the messengers, but you can't lock up the message. Keep on going, verses 5 and 6. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, 
and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. Okay, all of that is longhand for the Sanhedrin. We got to talk about the Sanhedrin. As I said, it's important in the gospel accounts. It's important in the book of Acts. If you would look at the Sanhedrins, they are the highest court in the land for the Jewish people. If you would take our Congress and, and our Supreme Court, bring them together and whittle it down to 70 people, that's the Sanhedrin. They have that much power. Within the San, to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be older, you had to be morally impeccable, you had to be a scholar, and you had to be a teacher. Now, the leader of the Sanhedrin is the equivalent of the Speaker of the House, and he's called the High Priest. He's the top dog, and, and he only rules as a leader, the, the High Priest, for a certain amount of time. And the Mosaic Law is very strict about how you pass down the High Priest position. But what's going on here is this guy named Annas has become the godfather of, of Judaism. Five of his sons would become high priest. In fact, they mentioned this guy named Caiaphas. It was Caiaphas's, he's a high priest at this time in our story. It was his idea to arrest Jesus. He's a son-in-law of Annas. And then there's a guy named John. John is one of Annas' sons. Shortly after this, he would become a high priest. And then they mention this guy named Alexander. We don't know who this guy is. Um, most likely, he's also related to Annas. Uh, Luke mentions him in this story because most of the people probably would know who he is. But here's the issue at hand. Corruption had infested the Sanhedrin to the point where shortly after this, the Roman government would be choosing who the high priest would be. And that's a big deal. Corruption, power, a refusal to live out God's laws, living out, out, out those two most important commands, loving God with all our heart, soul, minds, and strength, and loving each, each other as themselves. The Sanhedrin, they weren't doing that, and it marred their witness. And it can do the same thing for us because power has been corrupting since the beginning of time. Let's keep on going. Verse 7. When they, the Sanhedrin, had placed them, Peter and John, in the center, they begin to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Okay, so here's what would happen. In the temple, there's this room, and they would, the, the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin would hear cases. And what they would do is they'd get in this big semicircle, these 70 men. And in this big semicircle, they'd put whoever's on trial right in the center, and it's really intimidating. It's the exact same place Jesus would be eight weeks prior. You've got a peanut gallery going on with other Pharisees and scribes who are in there. So think about Peter and John. They're, they're humble fishermen, yet they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they're standing in, in front of the equivalent of a Supreme Court arguing law. And they ask him a question. By what power or in what name have you done this? Here's what's interesting. And I wish we had time to go into this. If you go back to Matthew 21, Jesus overturns the tables in the temple. He's, he's going to be arrested shortly after this. And he's teaching in the temple. And the scribes and Pharisees approach him. And guess what question they ask? That exact same question. Put a pin in that because we're going to see something else happen in just a second that goes back to those previous eight weeks. But they're, what they're asking about is not truth. They're not asking about, hey, how's Jumping Jack Flash uh, up, and, up and running? No, they're caring and they're worried about the authority and what power they were using to heal because it's a power struggle. Let's keep on going, verses 8 through 11. <clears throat> then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, 
If we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, that's our man Jack, as, as to how this man has been made well. Okay, hang on just a second. You guys know I like to Greek out. You know I like to geek out. Made well. We're going to come back to it. Underline it. Circle it. Put stars around it. We're going to come back because it's important in our story. Let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, Jesus, this man, jumping Jack Flash, stands here before you in good health. Jesus, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the Sanhedrin, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Some of your translations say the chief capstone. Okay, a bunch to unpack here that are, that's important with our story, so bear with me on some of this stuff. Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Pastor Bob talked about that on week two, that when you receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and then you get special fillings throughout your life, and that's what we see here. So Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he says, hey, Sanhedrin, listen, guys, our bad, you know, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have healed Jack. Jack, would you calm down? Would you chill, man? You're not helping matters. Listen, we're sorry about that. Our agent, Mary Magdalene, will get in touch with your agent. A couple weeks from now, we'll do lunch. We'll have a few drinks. We'll kick back. Awesome. That's not what he says at all. He comes out boldly and says, in the name of Jesus, this man is made well. Made well. I said we got to Greek out and geek out. This is cool. The word for made well or to, to be healed, it, it, the Greek word is sozo. Sozo. But here's what it means. This is what's so cool about this. The word sozo means not only to be healed, but to be made complete emotionally, physically. And spiritually, put a pen in that one too. We're coming back in just a, to that in just a second. Then they quote Psalm 118. They say the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone or the capstone. The stone is Jesus and, and the Sanhedrin are the builders and they've rejected God's stone, Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. So let's talk about that. Back in those times when you'd build a building, you'd have this cornerstone. It is the most important stone in the entire building. If the stone is skewed by any way, shape, or form, the building's going to be off and the building will crash. Kind of a metaphor with our lives if we don't build our lives on who's perfect, Jesus. The same thing happens. For the, those of you who have the capstone as your, your translation, if you've, you have an arch in that time, a stone arch, the center stone is the capstone. You pull out that stone, the arch collapses. So Peter has the people of Israel in mind here. And here's what's interesting about this. I said we're going to come back to Jesus in Matthew 21. What's interesting about this is Jesus said these exact same words to the, the scribes and Pharisees. Many of them, I think, are sitting in the room at that time, right before he's arrested. The exact same words. But then he also said, the kingdom of God will be taken from you. Their power is being threatened. I guarantee you in that peanut gallery, in this room at this time, is this guy named Saul. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll talk about him over the next few weeks. Verse 12. Peter drops the bomb here in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Oh, we got to Greek out and geek out again here too, because the word saved, the word saved, guess what it is? Sozo. The same word is being made well, being made complete. And that's what happened when we receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord. We're made complete. He fills that hole, that gaping hole that we have. It's interesting how so often in our lives we can go looking for things to make us complete. 
We can say, you know, if only I get that job, if only I get that title, if only I get that, that corner office, if only I get that pay raise, then I'll be complete. And God's saying, no, nothing can complete you but my son, Jesus. Or for that young teenager, that young teenage boy who's saying, you know, if only I get that girl whose hair matches my car, then I'm going to be complete. Or better yet, uh, if only, uh, the gal says, if only I can marry someone who's just as handsome and beautiful as Pastor Brian, like Pastor Bob, they should be action figures. Let that sink in. (laughs) Then I'll be complete with the kung fu grip. God's saying, no, only my son can make you complete. But if only I have that child, then I'll be complete. And God's saying, no one can complete you. Nothing can complete you except my son, Jesus. Now, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's no other way. It's not your path is your path, mine is mine. Hey, we all meet at the top of the mountain. Jesus Jesus didn't say that. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And a lot of people say, well, that's pretty arrogant. Can't we all just get along? Can't we just coexist? Well, yeah, it is arrogant if it weren't true. Because as we spoke about when we looked at the believability of the Bible several weeks ago, we have fulfilled prophecy. We have the historical life of Jesus. We have miracles. We have teachings. We have a resurrection that more than 500 people saw. No other religious leader makes a claim. No other religious founder makes a claim that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And it's like, oh, you you Christians are so exclusive, are we? Because Jesus said, for God so loved the world, that's everybody. He gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever, that's anybody, would believe in him, wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. And Peter drops the bomb. He's standing in front of the Sanhedrin, and he said, there's no name under heaven by which men can be saved. There's nothing under heaven by which men can be made sozo complete. Because the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leadership believed that the Mosaic law saved you. And that was the issue. You know, our Muslim friends think that it's all about works. You know, you do your good works, and when you choke on your chicken bone and you die, and you stand in front of Allah, he's going to hold the the scales of justice, and as long as the good outweighs the bad, you're in. Our Mormon friends are the same. There's a work-based salvation that's there. And Jesus says, no, you, none of us can do any of this type. We, we can't do anything to earn our way into heaven. That's why Jesus steps down and walks in the dirt with us. He steps down from his throne. No other religion has its leader, its founder, step down from his throne to walk with a people and die for a people who would betray him. But he does it out of his love out of his love for you, and out of his love for me. So he's slammed to the cross, and he takes on our sin, past, present, and future. The stupid stuff we did last week to the stupid stuff we're going to do in a few weeks because we're made of this, this thing called flesh. And Jesus is resurrected, and now when we receive Jesus, God looks at us, and he doesn't see the stupid stuff in our lives. He sees the beauty of his son, Jesus. God loves you. 
And here's what's interesting. You know, Brennan Manning is a late theologian, uh, passed away a few years ago. He once said these words. He said, we need to often pull back and let this sink in. That not only does God love you, he has to love us. I mean, he's God. God is love. But beyond that, God actually likes you. When you have Jesus in your life, God likes you. He wants to hang out with you. He wants to spend time with you. It's not that he's your buddy-buddy. He's God. You're not. We're not. But he likes you. And when he looks at you, he doesn't see the caterpillar. He sees the butterfly. When he looks at you, he doesn't see the egg. He sees the eagle ready to soar. When he looks at you, he doesn't see the screw-up from last night or last week, or whenever. He sees the saint. And that should give us hope that, that Jesus makes us so-so. He makes us complete. Yes, he's the way, the truth, and the life. Very exclusive, but very inclusive. For God so loved the world. Verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed, began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Okay, so Peter and John are living out our main idea today. When you're confident in Christ, you can walk under his authority and act on your convictions. That's what they're doing. Now, here's what's interesting. Peter, just eight weeks before, he denied Jesus three times. Hashtag cock-a-doodle-doo. But now then, he's standing up and he is proclaiming Jesus boldly with his actions and his words. Folks, this is is such an important truth that we got to hang on to in today's teaching. And the truth is this, boldly proclaiming Jesus takes both actions and words. It does. Boldly proclaiming Jesus takes actions and words. Look what happens here. You got jumping Jack Flash. He's crippled. Peter heals him. Under the name of Jesus. Jesus heals him through Peter. I should say it that way. And now then, you've got this healing. That action leads to an audience. The Sanhedrin. The supreme court of the land. Without that action, you're not going to earn a right to be heard. Our actions let us earn the right to be heard. It's so important for us as Christ followers, for us as a church, because the number one criticism of the church and Christians is that we're all a bunch of hypocrites. So our actions, the way we love counts. And then our words count because we need to be able to to share with others our hope in Jesus. Actions and words. So Peter heals, there's the action. He's able to share boldly the words. That's why we're so excited about this neighbor to neighbor program that we're doing. I wanna be clear, people are not projects. We're not doing it because we want to uh, have the, the person next door be a project. No, we want to get to know our neighbors. We want to love our neighbors. We want to love them greatly no matter where they are in life. But here's what happens. When, when you're loving someone dearly, when you're building into their lives with your actions, all of a sudden when they go through something, guess what? They're probably going to knock on your door and say, hey, I got a question for you. I'm going through something. You've earned that right to be heard. It happened to me. 
I was in uh, the Army 28 years, and part of the, my time in the military, five years I was in Special Forces, the best time of my life in the military. I like to jump out of perfectly good airplanes. I must have hit my head on the ground way too many times. I thought it was awesome. I loved doing that. Now, uh, I wasn't a Christ follower at the time, and, and I remember uh, getting ready for a jump. Uh, you know, we showed up at the, the air base, and, you know, our two-and-a-half ton truck pulls up, and there is uh, all the parachutes in the back. So I grab a parachute, I put on the parachute, put on all my combat equipment and everything. I waddle out to the aircraft because it's 200 pounds of really lightweight, fun stuff. And we get on the aircraft and we jump out of the perfectly good airplane. I land like a sack of poo. It was awesome. And I stood up and I'm like, you know, someday there's a chance. I mean, it's Russian roulette pulling off my chute off the truck. I didn't know, you know, you, you never know if you're going to get a bad chute. And then it's like, you know, frap in. That's not a good thing. That makes a really bad day. So I got a friend of mine in the unit. His name's Brian Sparling. Brian, I was a company commander. Brian was a detachment commander. And Brian was different than the rest of us. As I said, I wasn't a Christ follower, but he was. Solid leader. A man full of wisdom. The way he approached the stress and everything, we were gone 250 to 300 days a year for five years. And it was very, very difficult. But the way he approached it was amazing. And we started having conversations. And sure enough, it, during, after a certain time in my life, um, he, he just, the way he was sharing Jesus, I'm like, I want that. He earned the right to be heard. Little did I know, because I received Jesus there. I was, was baptized uh, there in 1993. It was amazing. And a big part of it was because of Brian Sparling. So for those of you who don't like my preaching and don't like me, I'll give you Brian's email address. It's all his fault. He had earned the right to be heard in my life. Had he shown up in my life and, and immediately when we met and said, Kip, let me tell you about Jesus, ah, I probably would have throat punched him. But what was great is we developed a relationship and we are dear friends to this day. That's my point. Earning the right to be heard is important. Boldly proclaiming Jesus takes actions and words. So back to Peter and John. Peter and John were not country bumpkins. In fact, they were, they were raised reading and writing Hebrew so they could do that. They had basically our Old Testament the Hebrew Bible, so they memorized scripture, that was part of their upbringing, and they also, they also knew the history of Israel, but they hadn't been through the rabbinical training system, yet they were confident, and that's so important. They were confident of who they were because they were confident of whose they were. Think about that. They were confident of who they were. They were disciples of Jesus. They had walked in the dirt with Jesus. They had had highs, lows, wins, and losses with Jesus, but they knew that they were sons of the living God. They based their self-esteem not on the pedigree of man, but on the grace of God. This is why I love the story of Desmond Doss. He had this confidence in Christ that, that was uncanny. He was confident that he was a son of the living God, and that caused him to say, I know what my eternal destination is. I know what God has called me to at this time, and he walked into it. It was his confidence in Christ that when he showed up to the army recruiter and said, hey, conscientious objector, not going to carry a, a, a rifle, but I want to be on the front lines to save lives. It was his confidence in Christ. It was his confidence in Christ that on Hacksaw Ridge caused him to keep going back and going back and saving more men. 
that when yet another hand grenade went off and, and blew shrapnel into his leg so he couldn't walk, he would crawl to each man trying to save yet another man. It was his confidence in Christ when another hand grenade went off by him, uh, blowing his arm, blowing his arm up, and he'd have this bone sticking out of his arm. So he'd reset the arm, he'd get a butt of a rifle that he found on the ground, strap it to his arm, put his arm in a sling, and now he'd crawl one-handed to each soldier saving a life. That's boldly doing it. He had confident confidence in Christ. Guys, you are sons and daughters of the living God. And he calls on you and me to walk with character, honor, integrity, and faith. Because when we do, guess what? Lives change. Look at the response of the Sanhedrin, verse 14 through 17. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, that's Peter and John, they, the Sanhedrin, had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But so, just so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. The Sanhedrin's in a pickle. They're in a rough spot because they got Jumping Jack Flash now. If he had a thigh master, he'd be going on that thigh master. He's like all excited. He's doing yoga stretches. He's excited and they've seen this miracle. They've seen thousands upon thousands of people coming to Jesus, including some scribes and Pharisees. Luke says a miracle happened. But here's the thing about the Sanhedrin. It's not that they couldn't believe, it's that they wouldn't believe. I mean, they'd been pre presented the evidence over and over. They had seen Jesus walk the dirt and do amazing things in that three years before he, was, before he went to the cross, and then he was resurrected. They'd seen all this, but they refused to believe. Go back three years before this. There's a guy from the Sanhedrin. I don't think he's in the Sanhedrin at this time because I think Luke would have mentioned it. His name's Nicodemus. He ends up becoming a follower of Jesus, I think. Anyway, three years before this, he meets with Jesus in the middle of the night. And he says, Rabbi, we, the Sanhedrin, we know, we know that you're doing amazing things. You've got to come from God because only a man of God could be doing these signs and wonders like you're doing. It's not that they couldn't believe. They had the evidence, but they wouldn't believe. And some of you here may be in that same boat. You have the evidence. We stand up here each week, Pastor Bob, Pastor Brian, and, and I, we, we, we stand up here and we present Jesus, and you've got the evidence. We encourage you, if you don't have the evidence, to, to dig down and do the research, the reason for God, the case for Christ, all these amazing books we always recommend, having those conversations. But at some point, you've got to say, I've got enough info. I've got enough to step and cross that line of faith. Jesus, you, I want you to be my God. Forgive me for the junk in my past. Walk with me. I believe in you and only you. So the Sanhedrin come up with a plan. And it's kind of a goofy plan. They just say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give them a coloring book. We're going to say, shut up and color. Stay within the lines. Everything's fine. No harm, no foul. We got cleanup operations to do. You know, here's the thing. This one's not in your notes, but this is something to think about. For those of you who are leaders, 
uh, those of you who are in the military and, and heads of large organizations, uh, for those of you who are parents or grandparents or have influence in someone's life, never give an order that you can't enforce. Because if you can't enforce it, guess what? They're going to do whatever they want. And so they give this order that's unenforceable, verses 18 through 20. And when they, the Sanhedrin, had summoned them, Peter and John, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's that unenforceable order. They can't stop them from doing it. But Peter and John answered and said, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. The Sanhedrin's trying to do a gag order on the disciples. And they basically say, hey, we don't work for, for you. We work for God. Take it up with God if you've got a problem with it. We've got to preach and teach. See, they didn't understand that the, the disciples and that early church, they're, they're ordinary people, but they're fueled by an extraordinary God. They're ordinary people, and they're fueled by the Holy Spirit, and they show undeniable courage and unwavering conviction. Let's keep on going, verses 21 and 22. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people. Look at this, look at this. Because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man, Jack, was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So the Sanhedrin backed down temporarily. But the war, the war has just begun. And what we're going to find is they're going to get great opposition because of their obedience and because of that, we're going to see from opposition, we're going to see persecution. And that's going to be the church from 2,000 years ago to the present time. That's what we're going to see. But it's based on their obedience. Pastor Chris Brown once said these words. He said, great obedience brings, brings great opposition. Great obedience brings great opposition. It's true for them. It's true for us. If you want to walk and live out the character of Jesus... It's going to be tough. It can cost you your job. It can cost you family members. In some places, it can cost you your life. Yet it's what God calls us to do. It's Christian character. A handful of weeks ago, I preached a sermon uh, that we talked uh, somewhat about social justice. I don't like that term, social justice, because it's just a, a powder keg when it comes to politics and things of that nature. So we called it biblical justice. And we looked at Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with the Lord? And we talked about the two different words for justice that we see in Hebrew. One is tzedakah, which means to treat each other equally and simply love each other because, guess what, we're all created in the image of God. But the other is mishpat, and that takes it to a different level. You want to talk Christian character, mishpat is where we rectify injustice. God calls that to you and me, to the church. It's Christian character. It's doing what's right in the middle of the night when no one's around. It's Christian character. It's refusing to fudge the numbers at your office when your boss is saying, hey, you need to fix this and, you know, nobody's going to know about this, but I, you're going to fix this or you're fired. And you say, well, I guess I'm showing up at the unemployment line because it's Christian character. It's loving the unlovable, forgiving the unforgivable when they've done the worst thing to you that you could ever imagine. It's Christian character. It's living your faith outside of these walls from the boardroom to the bedroom, 
from the field of battle to the field of sports, from your backyard to the schoolyard, from your home workplace to your office workspace. It's Christian character. And here's the beauty about the grace of Jesus. With Jesus in our lives, when we screw up, because we're going to screw up, come on guys, face it, we have this thing on us called, called skin, which means we sin. When we screw up, we own it. We confess it to God and someone else. We make amends for the mess we've made, and we simply stand up, we move forward and get back in the arena and fight because we're not defined by our latest sin. Man, if I was in a Baptist church, people would be saying amen. I think I just pulled a muscle right there. I was preaching the, the heat, people. Come on. Amen. There we go. Thank you. Yeah. Folks, when we walk the, the talk, when we live out our faith with actions and with words, lives change. All right, one last story about Desmond Doss. Uh, when Desmond Doss was, was injured on the battlefield, and I remember he's, he's a little guy. He was like this tall and weighed about 100 pounds with, with change in his pocket. Uh, when he's injured that last time on the battlefield, he passes out, they get him on a stretcher, they get him to an aid station, and when he comes to at the aid station, he realizes he's lost his Bible. Now, that Bible meant a lot to him. It's been with him for years and years. And so the men in the unit, some of the same men who earlier had said, Doss, when we get on that battlefield, you're the first guy I'm going to kill. They hold a search party in a combat operation for his Bible, and they actually find it. They dry it off, and they get it back to him, all because of his actions and his words. Many of them would come to Christ because God would use him in a very special way to change lives eternally. It took confidence, authority, and acting out on the convictions. Okay, let me wrap this up. Skip down now to verses 29 and 30. Because the boys walk out of there with their heads held high. They, they've walked away from the Sanhedrin. They've done what they've been called to do. So they get all the disciples together and they hold a prayer meeting. Read all the prayer on your, your own. I want to skip to the backside of that prayer as I wrap up today. Verses 29 and 30. They say, and now, Lord, take note of their threats. That's a Sanhedrin. Look at this. Look at this. And grant that your bond servants may speak your word with all confidence. Let me say that again, and if you've got your Bibles, underline that. And grant that your bond servants may speak your word with all confidence. While you, you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In other words, grant us confidence. Grant us confidence, not get us out of here. Grant us confidence, not change that rascally political leadership. Grant us confidence, not make things easy. It's a prayer that was prayed 2,000 years ago, and it's, an, it's a prayer we need to be praying today. So what I want to do, I want to give you a challenge, and your challenge is to not only pray this every day this week, my hope would be is that you would pray it every day of your life. It's, it's, it's this prayer. God, grant me the confidence to reflect your character. That's the character of Jesus. That I walk with character, honor, integrity, and faith. God, grant me the confidence. The confidence to establish relationships with people who don't know you. People so far from you, but I want to love them well. Grant me confidence to do that. To speak with actions and with words. God, grant me the confidence to be a humble servant. And then at some time, 
to have that courage to be able to say, this is why Jesus makes me so, so complete. God, grant me the confidence to walk with character, honor, integrity, and faith. The early church prayed that 2,000 years ago, and they became unleashed, unhindered, and unstoppable. Will you pray that with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. Thank you. Thank you for, for, for this message. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the disciples who consistently showed up. The, concise, the, the disciples who, with their actions and their words, you use them to change this world and continue to do that. That we can stand on their shoulders because they stand under the authority of Jesus as we do too. Give us courage, God. Help us reflect your character, Jesus, in all we do. Let us walk with character, honor, integrity, and faith. And all of God's people said, amen.